So this is so countercultural. It's not to say it was easy. I mean, th there are instances of marriages breaking up. Uh, for example, a uh, a wife did, just did not want to send her little girl into Sabbath school with all these uh, little black boys. But her husband was dedicated uh, to this and uh, she left him over it. So um, it was not easy. Welcome back to Advent Next, a theological podcast curated for curious faith discussions. This week, we are talking with Dr. Douglas Morgan, author of the biography, Louis C. Sheaf, Apostle to Black America. Sheaf was an African-American pastor of the first interracial SDA church in Washington, D.C. Sheaf was a revolutionary figure for his time, and Dr. Morgan seeks to dust off the records of history and place him in his rightful prominence as one of the most important leaders of the early church. Recommended reading for this week is Louis C. Sheaf, Apostle to Black America by Dr. Douglas Morgan. This program is part of a larger initiative to educate members on the history of the Black experience in the church. If you're not already following us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, be sure to find us at the handle at AdventNext. I'm your host, Kendra Arsenal, and this is AdventNext. Well, I, I've been teaching um, in the history department at Washington Adventist University for several years, but currently I'm on leave from that, and I'm an assistant editor for the uh, Encyclopedia of Seventh-day Adventists, which is a new uh, thing that's uh, going to be coming online soon. My interests uh, were really at the intersection of church history, Adventist history, race, as well as, as the war and peace. And so I had read passing references to Sheaf in works by other Adventist historians, and they intrigued me. Um, but there was not much there. I was invited to undertake research about the first church in Washington, D.C. Historic congregation started out interracial. The daughter of Frederick Douglass, uh, Rosetta D uh, Douglas Sprague, was a member. And that interested me, but I had no idea of the scope of what I would find. And in the course of that, I began to find more and more about Louis C. Sheaf. And so that uh, eventually uh, expanded into enough uh, for, for a book uh, about him. So what was it that first initially interested you? Like you said that you were interested in it and somebody had you read some writing about him. So what was it that initially intrigued you? It was in uh, George Knight's biography of A.T. Jones. And he mentions that uh, Louis Sheaf was pastor of, of a, a church. It was called the People's Church, which in itself was kind of intriguing. Uh, but that he had protested uh, racial injustice in the church and the congregation had gone uh, independent of the organized work, if we can put it that way, and then had returned. Um, and so I thought, I've never, never heard of this person. And uh, it sounds very, very intriguing. Uh, and so I had my antenna out, put it that way, yeah. uh, when I began the study on uh, the first church history. And I was doing this um, just when um, sort of the 
um, online revolution, if I can put it that way, in terms of what's available full text. Um, And so I took advantage of that. However, I also had to do a lot of just scrolling through microfilm of old newspapers, going through um, boxes and archives. I love doing that. It's not real time efficient. But one thing that uh, I mentioned it because what spurred my interest in Sheaf was that I'm going through this uh, newspaper. It's called the, the Colored American. It was one of two uh, black newspapers in Washington at the time. And I'm seeing one or two little references to him. And then all of a sudden, boom, he's on the front page. And there's a two-page article. And it's a, about a new faith comes. And it's stirring Washington, D.C., and I said, wow, <laughs> this was something. And so that really then made me think, uh, along with some things I was finding in the correspondence files at the, the General Conference archives uh, that just said, this is a significant figure who has been uh, too much forgotten. Hmm. So tell us, so he was the, the pastor of the first church in Washington, D.C., and this was an interracial church. Uh, so tell us a little bit about uh, what you know about them starting this church. And you said they went a little bit rogue for a while and they came back. Well, I should make a distinction uh, between that church and then another one that she started in Washington through his evangelism called uh, the People's Church. Okay. But he he began as pastor of the first church and then um, started planted this new congregation uh, afterwards, which was the one that went independent okay but uh the first church started off just the washington church there were no other churches in washington um in 1886 at a time when um adventism was trying to finally make a dent in the cities we had really done very little but setting up city missions and washington was one of those and by 1889 a congregation officially of 26 but it's really a little larger than that uh, in terms of people attending, and it, it grows pretty well. By a decade later, it's got 150 members, which is a sizable uh, congregation for that time, and about 100 of them are white, and about 50 of them are black. And uh, A.F. Ballinger, who is uh, a revivalist, who is there, they, the settled pastor was still only gradually coming in, but anyway, Ballinger was there for a few months, and he uh, writes in his monthly report, the end of 1899 to the uh, General Conference, this church is a miracle of the living God, mm. composed as it is of the two races, and that the other churches um, you know, uh, recognize this and are amazed, impressed, I'm paraphrasing, uh, by it. Uh, so uh, that intrigued me, especially since this was a point in American history when segregation was being uh, imposed uh, more heavily and more rigidly uh, than ever before, often referred to as the nadir of, uh, of uh, race relations in the nation's history. Um, the Supreme Court approved separate but equal 1896. The yeah. South officially codifies segregation. And attitudes nationwide really uh, I mean, scientific, quote, pseudo-scientific racism, put it that way, becomes popular in the universities nationwide. 
So you're talking about like eugenics and Darwinism and there that you go. Of, okay. Moving in that direction. And um, the idea that we want to reunify the country, heal the wounds of the civil war and bring the white nation back together, which means that, you know, that's really at the expense uh, of racial equality. Hmm. So it's a, what's happening at this Adventist church in Washington, D.C. is flying in the face of that. And they're aware of it. Um, a man named Kallstrom, a Swedish immigrant, uh, he was the elder of the congregation. And, you know, he writes specifically, the world day by day is um, worsening the relations between uh, the races. But we believe that God's, again, I'm paraphrasing, but that equality um, is, is what God stands for. And we intend to uh, do that in our fellowship. Hmm. I wonder, and maybe, you know, some of the research that you've done can answer this, like, how were they, were they really able to like, you know, to, to kind of meld their two cultures together in this church? I mean, how, how were they, what, what were some principles which kind of, kind of solidified their, their unity in the sense? Well, my sense is that for a few years, they did succeed in having that type of fellowship. The other key um, figure in this was a black man by the name of James H. Howard. Uh, he was a physician, but his main employment was in uh, the federal government. He had a relatively high position. He was the uncle of Eva B. Dykes, who, who would be much better known than, than uh, he was. But he was a very eloquent voice for racial equality. And he, his spirit, um, I think, was sort of um, pervasive. In other words, he brought a lot of people <laughs> into the church. Now, uh, they were also very active in um, reaching out uh, to um, the poor, uh, various types of missionary service. But... Um, I would say that the evidence that there was a sizable group of, of both uh, races that were committed to this comes most clearly when the pressure from uh, the conference, general conference level comes into split. Mm. And so then you have um, about half of the white membership does go and, and form a separate congregation, but the other half uh, remains with this congregation, which now takes the name the First Church, uh, because now there's the second one, which became known as, as the Memorial Church. That's not to say it was easy. I mean, th there are instances of marriages breaking up. Uh, for example, a, uh, a wife did, just did not want to send her little girl into Sabbath school with all these uh, little black boys. But her husband was dedicated uh, to this and uh, she left him over it. So um, it was not easy. And, uh, you know, it's a question of, of, well, could it have lasted given? Uh, and again, we have to realize, although today um, with, with, with uh, the racial issue being so raw and tense once again, 
you know, we're very attuned to it, but still 120 years ago <laughs> at this point in our history uh, as a nation, um, the, 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 the racial divide is so stark. And Washington, D.C. is a little bit of a strange uh, intermixture, but, uh, intermixture of North and South, but basically it's a Southern city with Southern uh, mores. So this is so countercultural. Wow. So last, but they really, again, maybe just real quickly, yeah. from the letters of Kallstrom and Howard, there is a theological, they're, they're doing this because they believe this is what Adventism it's all about. If we're truly going to be the last day church, following the commandments of God, the faith of Jesus fully, the Holy Spirit has to be powerful enough to conquer racism. I mean, they actually say words to that effect. Wow, that, that's incredible. I mean, when you think about the climate of what it was 120 years ago, and then so basically they were making this church more of a political statement. They weren't looking to be comfortable. They were looking to make a statement. And like you were saying, during this time, you had uh, the separate but equal legislation passing. I mean, how did that, b before that legislation passed, were more Adventist churches maybe on the road to being kind of like this uh, Washington church? And how did that legislation then affect the way that Adventist churches began to congregate? Yeah, that that's that's an um, excellent and somewhat complex question because at the same time you have another factor, and that is that um, the mission of Edson White to the South, uh, going down on uh, the Mississippi, the steamboat-based evangelism, encounters a violent reaction. So um, there is a growing sense that, well, for practical, pragmatic reasons like staying alive, um, we might have to adapt our idealism in the South uh, over um, having the races meet together. Uh, so uh, unquestionably, the, I mean, and, but that is all part of the sort of clamp down in, in this period, whereas after the Civil War, there was a period of fluidity, uh, and that goes on even longer after typically what we call Reconstruction ends in 1877. But in the 1890s, this is really um, going the other direction. In Louisville, Kentucky, there was an attempt uh, in the late 1890s to uh, join the churches, the, the black and the white. It, it for, didn't work. The, the details are not entirely clear, but the inference one draws is that the, the, the black people felt that they were um, still being regarded as inferior in this mixed congregation. And, and they, you know, so that, that it didn't work there. Um, I'm not aware of too many other examples uh, where you have a large uh, group of, of both races uh, together in a congregation. It was very common. In fact, it was the norm for individual or small groups of black people to worship with the white believers in previous years. Um, th that was not, that, that was the norm. In fact, um, some uh, historians like um, Kevin Burton and Benjamin Baker are finding more and more names 
of black Adventists um, that we didn't know about. And they were all, they, they weren't part of a black church. They were, uh, you know, just joining in uh, with uh, the church in their locality. Uh, this is in earlier decades now, uh, part of the 1890s. But um, when you have a, a, a pretty substantial group, uh, 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 that becomes more problematic. Uh, yeah. So tell me a little bit more about the, the, this first kind of interracial church that was popping up in Washington. One, what do you think the climate was, uh, you know, just culturally or, you know, for, for this to be able to form, but one, it also seemed like these were very politically minded individuals who said we were here to make a statement. Um, and then kind of what happened after some of the separate but equal legislation passed, was this the beginning of the breakup of that church or when did that begin to deteriorate? Well, uh, 1896 was uh, the Supreme Court decision. And beyond that, um, this... Um, interracial miracle, if we can use Ballinger's language, did continue uh, for a, a few years. So I think that they were not wanting to go along with that trend at all. Um, this Dr. Howard that I mentioned, uh, he was part of the educational and cultural uh, elite uh, of African Americans in Washington, DC. I think this is an important point. Uh, Washington DC was, had the largest con uh, concentration of black people of any city in America at that time. And it had a, a large um, educated class, better opportunities through the government uh, for employment than in most other places. And so from Howard's perspective, he says, look, Washington, um, has many forward-thinking people of both races, uh, which was true. And then Philadelphia, uh, uh, Baltimore, I think was second or third, Philadelphia fourth in terms of, of black membership. And he had contacts in those cities as well. His perspective is if we can show how Adventism handles this racial divide in a more in a way that's truer to the gospel than the other congregations, that's going to be a powerful witness. Mm. What an incredible opportunity we have. Mm. Um, so he, uh, very connected with what's going on in society, political, yes, in making a statement uh, about the burning issue of, 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 of the day. Um, you know, not so much in terms of, of legislation and so forth, but in saying that, that we're not going to... Um, uh, cave in, if you will, go along with the prevailing um, slide downward racially. There becomes, there comes a new thrust to, for evangelism in 1901 and 1902, and that would be the catalyst for Sheaf coming onto the scene for an influx of more members, and then things kind of get to a crisis point. Okay, tell us about the crisis point. So, so she, so Sheaf comes in during more of an evangelistic wave. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, and then tell us about the crisis. Yeah. Now maybe I should back up just briefly on okay. Sheaf. Um, he was educated at a Baptist seminary in 
uh, Washington, D.C., Wayland Seminary. He pastored in Minnesota and Ohio. While in Ohio, somehow um, he went to Battle Creek for treatment. And it's not even entirely clear what his uh, problem was um, that but it seemed to be that periodically it might have been something like depression or uh, you know nerves whatever um, he would periodically um, take these breaks from his pastorate but he goes to Battle Creek learns about Adventism there and uh, becomes uh, an Adventist minister in 1896 he's ordained uh, two or three years later the third African-American to be ordained to uh, the ministry uh, in, in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And he is, an, by all accounts, an eloquent speaker. Um, John Harvey Kellogg said, um, we don't have a white minister that can begin to stand next to this guy. Wow. Um, so back to Washington now. Um, everyone concerned recognizes that the racial issue is there in terms of evangelism. And in 1901, they had it, you know, they're always evangelizing. I mean, you know, every summer um, and even more. But in their tent that summer, a lot, there was a lot of interest uh, black people coming in to the meeting, but this time it was noticeably discouraging uh, white attendance. Hmm. So now they're gearing up uh, for 1902. And the General Conference has an interest in this, even though, uh, I mean, there's kind of some fluidity in terms of the development of the conference and union structure there on on the Eastern uh, Seaboard at this time. But um, so the General Conference is um, now willing to support a major evangelistic thrust in Washington, D.C. in 1902. And the idea was that we will bring in a white evangelist and a black evangelist. Hmm. And from the standpoint of A.G. Daniels, who was the General Conference president, this will be wonderful because then we'll be able to separate this existing church and then have the new white converts in a white church and then build up a black church. And he even went to Washington. He saw a lot of the great uh, black churches, AME, Episcopalian, uh, Fourth Presbyterian was a major one there. Man, these are fantastic. We can do this. Well, the man, the white evangelist was Washburn. The black uh, evangelist was Sheaf. Um, Now, Howard and Kallstrom there at First Church, their um, model on this was, yes, we need initially an evangelist of both races, but then as the new believers are brought in, they will be taught that part of what Adventism means is that we um, worship together. We're in one community and we treat each other uh, equally, not to create divisions. So um, back to that newspaper uh, that I found that was such an exciting discovery for me in 1902, Sheaf is having a tremendous success. He's, he is, has interracial, probably majority black, but interracial um, 
audiences. And, and there is a, another a report in the Washington Post where they said they set up 1,500 seats, more than 2,000 people attended. They're pressing in on the sides. It's a, it's a very vivid scene, white and black. And so then you have him, and then you have Washburn, and Washburn is not hardly getting much attention at all. As a matter of fact, since he never actually reports any numbers, uh, if he had numbers, I'm sure he would have claimed them uh, in terms of new believers. But um, uh, uh, Chiefs Evangelism eventually about 80, and I would estimate probably 15 to 20 of them were white. So he was actually baptizing more white people than Washburn was. Mm. Um, but the General Conference, and uh, by now you have, um, it's not yet the Columbia Union, but um, the Atlantic Union. Actually, this was, this was in the Atlantic Union at that point. And the Chesapeake Conference um, are involved, but it's really driven by the General Conference. Uh, they uh, bring the officials in in September 1902 to effect the division of uh, the church. And so um, that uh, uh, was a pretty traumatic uh, thing, but it resulted um, in, as I said before, one uh, white congregation, Washburn pastoring that, and then Sheaf was pastoring this mixed race church. Um, and uh, then <laughs> to add significance to this story, in 1903, just less than a year later, the General Conference moves from Battle Creek to border of Washington, D.C., Tacoma Park, bordering on D.C. and Maryland. And now what's happening racially in Washington is seen as setting the, um, well, they, they like to, they use the term the right mold. We're gonna, this is the mold for the work um, that we'll be establishing here. So how this racial problem is dealt here with Washington is, is going to be um, something that uh, uh, our people can look to throughout the nation, even the world, as to how we handle this problem. Sheaf and Daniels work, work together. Initially, Daniels is very upset with Sheaf because he went along with the first church, the integrationists or the racial idealists there. But uh, Daniels convinces Sheaf to start a new church, and this was called the People's Church. Mm. Uh, this was in December 1903. The first church continues as a mixed race congregation. The People's Church also has some white believers, but it's predominantly African American. So then we fast forward to the question of all right, so now this is going to be our new center, and we're going to set up a new sanitarium here. We're going to show that we don't need Dr. Kellogg because this is, this is the controversy, uh, the, the, the decade when that uh, controversy is coming to a rupture point. Wow. And we're going to set up a school. So how is all of that going to relate to these believers? By 1905, um, about 150 in, in, in the People's Church, and um, maybe another hundred or so uh, in uh, the first church, uh, will black Adventists, and I should say at this point, this is probably about 15, 20% of the total number of, of 
black people in the Adventist church nationwide. Are they going to have the same opportunity for uh, education, um, for access to the healthcare, also employment uh, at these uh, new institutions? And so that <clears throat> combined with the fact that the General Conference had supported the white church under Washburn uh, with a big fundraising campaign to acquire a church for him. When Sheaf and his people's church, um, see they're, meet, they're meeting initially in a rented hall. They need a building. They can't seem to get the General Conference to uh, come together on this with them. So finally Sheaf just from his members, from contacts he has in the community, because he's very, he's, he's earned a lot of respect in the broader community. They acquire a very nice building on their own. They have to finance it. And so now they're saying, look, can you help us out just a little? You gave 10,000 for the white church. Can you help us somewhat? Um, it, for whatever reason, it didn't come. Uh, it wasn't an absolute denial, but it seemed that other things were a priority. And so you put that with the fact then that not only uh, are these Black Adventists dutifully uh, returning their tithes and offerings into the centralized system, but um, they inquire, will we be permitted to use these institutions that are still being built in, in Tacoma Park, but they're just about to, to start? And uh, the answer is a little bit evasive, but really what it comes down to is no, probably not. Um, wow. Well, we, what about money to set up um, similar institutions, maybe not on the same scale, but at least commensurate with um, the, the, the membership uh, uh, that, that uh, is there? Uh, well, you know, again, it's kind of like, yes, we'll think about that. We'll work on it. But there was just a, 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 a huge disparity there. So the People's Church in 1906 says, all right, well, um, can we then simply retain our, our tithes and offerings and, and administer them as we uh, see fit? Right. Yeah. And th there was no, it was no doctrinal issue. They, um, you know, they, they loved the Adventist faith. They were deeply committed to it. Um, but um, they suggested that as a way of rectifying this inequity. But organization, especially in this setting of the Kellogg crisis and so forth, keeping that intact was, was a very high priority. And so, um, you know, th this idea of, a congregation retaining its funds, that was not acceptable at all. And so that led then to uh, the People's Church withdrawing from the denomination in 1907 wow. and becoming an independent uh, congregation, independent, still call themselves Seventh-day Adventists, still use the Sabbath school quarterly, etc., but uh, no longer part of the system. Wow. Okay, I have some questions on this. Looking at the interracial church that was first started by Sheaf, it's called the First Church. Basically, what happened to this church after he left? Did it continue that trajectory? And how was like the General Conference trying to, you know, mingle in that 
I want, we'll talk about that first and I have other questions about some stuff that you mentioned. Well, um, when the general conference moved to Washington in 1903, because of the complication of the race uh, problem there, they set up something called uh, the district uh, committee for the general conference directly to administer the churches in the Washington DC area. And so Daniels, I mentioned that to say then that Daniels really, although there's a committee that's handling it, he's really kind of hands-on quite a bit on this. And his conclusion is finally, uh, especially after he sees Sheaf's success firsthand, you know, an administrator loves to see baptism, you know, and, and that speaks very loudly. Uh, and so Daniel said, all right, well, let's just let everybody uh, do their own thing, so to speak. Black church, white church, mixed race church, blessings on them all. Now, I think that he believed that the mixed race experiment would uh, die out gradually. That it would be wiser just to, to let it alone. And probably uh, if he was thinking that, he was correct, but it was not immediate. In other words, um, I think that one way of viewing this would simply be to say, well, it's just the typical uh, fashion of what happens when the black presence increases, there's white flight, and that's just sort of the sociological law of things. But I, I want to say, no, there was a core of people for a few years of both races who put up a resistance against that and said, no, that is not the way of the gospel. Uh, it's a little hard to say exactly when the um, uh, church significantly, uh, was no longer significantly racially mixed. Yeah. But one way of looking at that is to say that for several years they refused uh, to be designated colored. I mean, that's demeaning anyway. But um, they said, no, <laughs> that's, you can't classify us that way. But when um, the District of Columbia Conference forms in 1909 um, and uh, reports in the union paper the, start to appear and so forth, pretty soon you start to see that colored designation. So that would be, you know, uh, several years later. Uh, so uh, at least I, I can say definitely until about 1906, 1907, First Church still had a significant racial um, mixture. intermixture of both uh, uh, groups, but uh, gradually there was attrition uh, from that. So I just want to wrap my head around this a little bit because I don't, I'm not familiar with this history, so it's interesting. So A.G. Daniels is, at first, he's really not on board with what Sheaf is doing. This is back in like 1902, and they asked him to leave and to start the People's Church. And then you were mentioning something like, okay, you had uh, another minister who the conference was supporting financially, uh, a white minister, uh, but they were not willing to support uh, Sheaf and the work that he was doing. Um, what was, you know, and, and they, were, they were, so basically they were not allowed to, to use their own tithe dollars to support their community or to start institutions. The GC kind of gave them the runaround when it came to, can we have access to the same facilities that you guys are building? And they're like, nah, maybe, but no. Um, and so, so the people's church kind of just say, we're going to do our own thing, keep our own tithe dollars. 
support our own community, but we're still committed to the Adventist faith. A, a question about that period is, why did Sheaf initially agree to leave um, and start that church? What was the rationale behind handing over this other, uh, was it was it a plant church planting venture or was it just, was, did they not like what he was doing or what, what was the catalyst? So initially, um, after the initial division of, of the Washington church, and so you have a, a white church of about 40 members, and then you have uh, a black church that has, um, uh, according to Callstrom, 122 black and 46 white members. Okay. Sheaf's idea initially was we're going to build this up. We're going to build this up. And uh, a new, new um, evangelistic season is coming in 1903. But Daniel says, no, um, it would be better to start another church. It's not our way to build up huge congregations. It's better to have uh, several congregations or, you know, rather than concentrating the membership uh, in one place. So uh, I'm not sure it's clear exactly what Chief was thinking. It is clear that the members of the first church were disappointed. See, so your question, I mean, they're, they're asking the same question. Why are you doing this? Um, but part of it, I think, has to do with initial encouragement, at least, and promise of support from Daniels. And Daniels even, he comes out and preaches sometimes. He's there for their official opening in the rented place uh, in, in December of 1903. And it is with the idea that let us make Washington, D.C. a center for um, the black work so that we can set up a training school here. And this is, you know, this is perfect. This will be great. But as Sheaf persists, uh, you know, and continues his evangelism, continues building things up, um, then uh, for reasons that might have to do with just continuing agitation from uh, uh, the first church idealists, um, the, it also, let me back up as things come to mind, Daniels was actually somewhat progressive, believe it or not, at least in relation to the rest of the General Conference Committee, um, because there was a lot of suspicion about Sheaf from the get-go. Um, George I. Butler, the former General Conference president, now he's back in uh, as the Southern Union president, and he says, Sheaf is just a Seventh-day Baptist He's not really <laughs> a, 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 a tried and true SDA. And so they said, they said to Daniels, what Chief is going to do is he's going to build up the following using the um, auspices and platform, metaphorically, of Seventh-day Adventism. And then when he builds up the congregation, he's going to take them and just, you know. And uh, so that... Um, made it difficult, I think, for Daniels. I, I 
don't think impossible. I, I think that if he really wanted uh, to act decisively, uh, they could have. But he was able to say, well, the General Conference Committee is not ready to do this at this point, and you know, that type of language. So that then, after having this initial support and encouragement to build up the People's Church, um, then the, the financial aspect is not coming through. Wow. And so gradually, Sheaf becomes more antagonistic. Um, he, he tries, I mean, there's about a two-year period where, you know, it, it seems like there's um, an opportunity for this to work, um, where we'll, we, we'll have congregations that are predominantly of, of, uh, of black and white, and then the, the mixed race as well, but we'll work together, you know, and uh, just build up the cause on multiple fronts. But uh, Sheaf's about 1905 when he has secured that building and it's down on uh, near the U Street Corridor in Washington, D.C., which was the center of action. It was near Howard University, all the black cultural institutions. I mean, it was perfectly positioned mm. to reach black Washington and it had enough space at least to begin a school. Uh, they even started to print a, uh, a, a, a periodical briefly out of there. Um, and then he financed that all with his church members and getting other loans from the community and so forth, but nothing. Wow. And he, he writes to Daniels and he says, um, Elder Daniels, I wish that you would come out for the dedication, we're moving into this new building. This is in 1905. And he says, uh, the people, he's referring to his church members, are asking me some questions that are hard to answer. Mm. Well, I don't know the details of, of Daniel's schedule um, or how, quote, legitimate his excuse was, but he didn't show up wow. uh, for that, uh, sent some other people. And so, then Sheaf starts to be more insistent. It starts to be an either or type of thing and eventually it leads to this breaking point that we talked about earlier. Wow. So, and we talked about this uh, previously in a conversation and I wanted you to flesh this out a little bit. You were mentioning that before, you know, the culture and, and, and the United States kind of made this hard line, separate but equal decision that Adventists were in line with doing kind of the work that was happening in Washington, more of this interracial uh, type congregation and looking to really be that. But then after legislation passed, they actually became more in line with the, the policy. Is that, is that correct? There was um, an African-American scholar who was a Seventh-day Adventist. He actually taught in Adventist schools. He did not remain active uh, although he remained close to the church throughout his life. His name was Arna Bontom. And he's writing later, and I quote him because he says it so well, uh, and he says that um, Adventism started out pretty well on race relations, but then they chose to appease the South. And um, he says, and they're paying the price for it. This is, he's writing this in about 1950. So um, even though we see some examples like this group in Washington that are pushing back against it by and large is pretty much of an accommodation of the general trend of, of the society uh, so far as I can see. Hmm. 
And just a little clarity too. And you said that there was a, a, a crisis that happened. Um, and, and maybe this was just the, the thing that happened between Sheaf leaving. But what was that crisis in 1902? Oh, well, 1902 was the uh, division of the congregations. But the real, I think the real crisis point comes in 1906 to 1907 when uh, the People's Church now um, sends a letter. I would call it a petition. Uh, really, uh, it's, it's, it's a protest action to the General Conference and saying, okay, are we going to be permitted to utilize the institutions that are being created in Tacoma Park? Mm. Um, if not, what are the alternatives? And if there are no other uh, alternatives, are you going to uh, help us build similar institutions for our people? Mm. Or if not, finally, they said, uh, you know, uh, we, would we have the permission, your permission, right. uh, to keep our own funds and um, handle the challenges uh, on our own, because actually they had done so thus far uh, uh, pretty well, although they certainly needed, uh, could use more help. Um, and so it was kind of um, an ultimatum. In other words, they forced the issue. And so the General Conference Committee was forced to say, and Daniels actually, he did write it on behalf of the response, on behalf of the committee. And basically, it tried to say, well, we can't really answer your question directly, because after all, uh, Washington Sanitarium and uh, uh, the Washington uh, Training Institute, as it was initially called, they have their own boards and so forth and so forth. But, you know, <laughs> that was so di uh, transparently um, <laughs> disingenuous because the general conference leaders were the chairman of the boards of those institutions, mm. you know. So there was really no uh, way that he could say, well, it's out of our hands. So the de facto answer is uh, no, uh, we're not going to, these are not going to be racially integrated. Uh, and then it's more like, um, well, for the time being, you can go up to South Lancaster, uh, wasn't yet Atlantic Union College, but future Atlantic Union College, you, you know, of course, we have Oakwood, we have Oakwood, hundreds of miles away in the deep south. Uh, we do need, they, they acknowledge, oh, yes, we need to build up a good school. Uh, and a treatment room that was the term then used for a clinic where you would do medical missionary work and not a full scale hospital, but you would, you know, uh, uh, minor treatments and uh, the health center, so to speak, a treatment room, but nothing tangible, just, just kind of um, vague assurances that, well, we will get around to this, but not now. So then, um, that leads uh, to uh, the, the people's church then saying, all right, well, we will just go on our own as an independent congregation. Now, there, there is a lot else going on. Uh, and one thing is back to uh, Kellogg, John Harvey Kellogg. Remember, Sheaf had come into the church through the sanitarium in Battle Creek and, and through Kellogg. Um, and so Sheaf says, all right, we got young people. They want to take nurses training, whatever. You're not going to take them? Well, we'll send them to Battle Creek. And he went, he himself uh, visited Battle Creek uh, at that time uh, because 
the when the when the general conference leaders would come out to speak, uh, uh, you know, guest speak on Sabbath at the People's Church periodically, um, they, they would they were they were now so concerned about Kellogg that over and over they would be preaching loyalty, unity, uh, and so Kellogg or excuse me, she says, all right, well, I'm going to go to Battle Creek and see if I can uh, find out if is Kellogg so awful as they say he is and uh, mm -hmm. so forth. Now, uh, that really... Um, Got under the skin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because now it's like, all right, so Sheaf is in league with Kellogg and A.T. Jones and they're going to start a rival denomination and so forth. Turns out that Sheaf and did not really have any sustained alliance with Kellogg, but that was an exacerbating factor that made things come into uh, this separation point then in 1907. Now, the, another thing that makes it a crisis is that, well, what about the first church? Because although they didn't like the fact that Sheaf uh, went to this other uh, project of raising a separate congregation, basically they still supported him. And they thought highly of of him, and so then the the the, the question comes: Well, are they going to join um, the People's Church in this? Are, is there going to be a separate denomination? Mm. After all, that's the typical pattern in American religious history. She visited James K. Humphrey in New York City. Now, that's another very important personage who would. Uh, sort of do this part two 20 some years later uh, you know we might talk about that later but uh he goes to other black adventist pastors here and there and he doesn't really get that much support and first church hanging in the balance but dr howard remember the leading light of that congregation his counsel was no don't separate from the organized work because look the current leaders don't own it. It's not theirs. They make mistakes, but um, we shouldn't leave because of that. So, but, but if he had gone the other way, then you would have had about 20% of the Black Adventist membership and, and momentum could have um, increased in that um, direction. Now, maybe I'll just quickly say that six years later, there was a reconciliation, but that ended up being uh, short-lived. And so a part of the People's Church remained independent. Eventually, they became Seventh-day Baptist uh, affiliated. But the other part of that congregation then that said, well, we want to stay with the organized work, they became what is today the, the DuPont Park Church in Washington, D.C. It's one of the uh, largest, maybe, the, uh, well, certainly one of the larger black churches and historically, uh, one of the main black churches in, in Washington, D.C. So after this crisis happened, uh, what, what ended up with, the, with, with Louis C. Sheaf? Did he, did he continue to pastor the, the People's Church? What did that reconciliation process look like, and why was it so short-lived? At the 1913 uh, General Conference session, um, uh, they had worked out the deal in advance, but they had a nice public reconciliation there. And Sheaf uh, says, okay, we admit that we were wrong in terms of um, not working with the Seventh-day Adventist system. 
And so the congregation comes back with basically with no preconditions, but with kind of word on the side that, yes, now we will start the school that you guys wanted and so forth. But part of the deal is that Sheaf will go to Los Angeles or go somewhere else. And that ends up being Los Angeles in 1913. Uh, but pretty soon there, um, some of the leaders uh, in the Southern California conference are starting to pressure him about um, the racial question and whether he believes that what Ellen G. White wrote in volume nine of, of the testimonies that had some problematic things uh, in it. Mm. Well, do you believe these brother chief? Do you accept this as an inspired counsel? What was she saying? What was this? Well, yeah, uh, that uh, is uh, opens up a whole another level of complication. <laughs> but um, in volume nine of the testimonies, you have a collection of things that are not well contextualized. And one of them was that, well, we, we, we have a number of uh, talented um, uh, black people who can uh, evangelize and teach and so forth. But for several reasons, a white man must lead. Okay. Now, again, as, as I say, these were not well contextualized as presented in the testimony. She's talking about a specific time and place, namely uh, the South, and also um, till the Lord shows us a better way, it's better to have separate congregations. Mm. Um, other statements which, in the context of, uh, say, Booker T. Washington, who was the major black leader of that time, don't look so bad, but for, for someone like Sheaf, who was a fervent, uh, passionate, um, idealist uh, on these issues, they fell uh, short. And he said, now the, the thing of it is also, it's a, it's a mixed bag. Some of the things that she says there are just beautiful. Hmm. And she, uh, he says, this is like a Chinese puzzle uh, to, to, the, to the fair-minded Christian. And if you have a very rigid, if you, if you lack a sense of context, and if you have a very rigid view of um, how inspiration functions, or if, if in, in a context where that tends to be the prevailing assumption, then it becomes a, a, a challenge. And um, uh, basically he, Louis C. Sheep, and another man by the name of, of uh, John W. Manns in Savannah, Georgia, hmm. uh, another black preacher, um, they took the position that, well, actually she didn't really say those things. Um, and so now they start something called the Free Seventh-day Adventists. And uh, pretty soon they break up and Chief goes back to Washington and he, he's back at the People's Church, but it's independent Seventh-day Adventist, eventually Seventh-day Baptist. And, and that's pretty much where he is for the remainder of his life. Um, so, so and, and I know I asked you some questions and, and interrupted a bit. So when they were about to make reconciliation, he's like, I'm sorry that we, we, we guys should be a part of the institutions. And then some people began to question him about the questionable statements that Ellen White had made. And then did, was that the catalyst that led them to be independent again? Or what was the catalyst to make them independent again? All right. So um, volume nine of the testimonies was published in 1909. 
The reconciliation comes about in 1913 between Sheaf and the General Conference. He goes out to California. Now, however they worked out that reconciliation and, and um, whatever was said that's not preserved in the correspondence or committee minutes, Sheaf was acceptable. But somehow when he goes out there to California, then they start, the people out there start pressing him hard on this. And it's like um, health reform. I mean, do you accept these statements about cheese? You know, this is the word of the spirit of prophecy. Mm. Uh, I think it's not far so beyond that uh, type of thing. So they make it an issue out there. Mm. In the meantime, though, back on the other side of the country, uh, there's other pastors now, denominally, denominationally appointed pastors. They're part of the District of Columbia Conference. But they say now the first chance they get, back then you had constituency or conference sessions every year. And so they go to the first one when they're back in what was then the District of Columbia Conference and said, all right, so let's get the school started. You know? <laughs> let's, and again, it's kind of like same thing. A runaround, basically. In the meantime, they're, they're big fundraising for what is now called Washington Missionary College and Mount Vernon College in Ohio. And, you know, um, so separately, although Sheaf is kind of <laughs> looming in the a specter in the background, but separately, the, the People's Church on its own makes this departure, a second and final departure in 1916. And then you have this further split then of those in that congregation who said, wait a minute, we want to stay with the organized Seventh-day Adventist work. And so then they became the nucleus of one of the major um, Seventh-day Adventist congregations. And then the People's Church just, um, it really did not thrive. Kind of held its own, uh, but uh, it, it, it lost dynamism in terms of growth or in terms of allying with other, you know, going into some kind of network or um, denominational fellowship that would be separate. Um, was, was, uh, was Sheep, was he like a, maybe like a closet Adventist for the rest of his life or did he, did he himself like denounce Adventism in that way? He didn't, he didn't um, doctrinally uh, denounce uh, Adventism or, or nothing like say DM Canright or, or, or whatever. And for a few years after he returns to Washington and resumes there at now the once again, independent people's church, the identity there is Seventh-day Adventist. Um, they, they hold on to that for about uh, four or five years. Um, and in fact, uh, Sheaf in his, the autobiographical information or the biographical information that he gave for um, Who's Who in Colored America, he says that he worked for the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists until 1921, when in fact it would have been about five years before when the second, uh, uh, the second and final um, parting of the ways. But then uh, in 1926, they affiliated with the Seventh-day Baptist. Now, at that point, he does, he, he makes a statement that says, with the Seventh-day Baptist, we find a sense of uh, freedom um, 
and a Christ-like spirit, which is kind of, you know, by contrast with what we had before. Yeah. Uh, so there's some implication there that, uh, you know, he probably was not preaching uh, oh, what we call the three angels' messages and the sanctuary doctrine and those types of things, but he never attacked um, the, uh, the Adventist church. Um, and he was a Sabbath. He, he held to that Seventh-day Sabbath uh, the rest of his life. I hope this episode sparked an interest to find out more about the life of Louis C. Sheaf, as well as the challenges to his idealism and starting the first interracial church during the heart of segregation. Please stay tuned for next week's episode as we continue these conversations with Dr. Calvin Rock and Dr. Douglas Morgan on the history of the Black experience in the church. Recommended readings for this week include the biography, Louis C. Sheaf, Apostle to Black America. We want to thank the Adventist Learning Community for making this program possible, as well as our guest, Dr. Douglas Morgan. If you're not already following us on Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram, be sure to do so at the handle at AdventNext. See you next week.